This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Last month, we spoke about the challenges of aid in the Nicobar Islands following the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. Today, we're talking to you about disasters even more complex in Afghanistan. While there's not a lot of media coming from the country, their people are in desperate need following war, floods, drought, and COVID-19 displacing millions of people. Our guest today will walk us through the challenges facing the people of Afghanistan. Andrew, who's joining us on the show today? Josh, our guest on the show today is Ash Carl from the UN International Organization for Migration, or IOM. Ash is a deputy head of mission in Afghanistan, where he's lived for over a year. Born and raised in Australia, Ash has held numerous roles and lived in Iraq, the North Pacific, Indonesia, and Thailand. Ash has been working with the humanitarian community in Afghanistan to support displaced populations, returning undocumented Afghan migrants and communities who need the greatest support. We'll be asking Ash what it's like living in one of the most challenging places on earth, supporting communities impacted by a multi-dimensional crisis and what can be done to build greater resilience in such a complex environment. Andrew, sounds like it's going to be a fascinating episode. Let's chat with Ash Carl here on Me, Myself and Disaster. And Ash Carl joins us now live from Kabul. Ash, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. Ash, a lot of our listeners would have seen those terrible photos recently with people trying to leave the country in a sense of desperation to get out. And it's been a really challenging situation. 90% of people have lost their source of income and millions have been displaced. Can you take us through the current situation on the ground in Afghanistan? Yeah, unfortunately, Andrew, the situation from a humanitarian perspective is really dire. Uh, as, as you mentioned in the intro, it's a multidimensional crisis. Uh, they, like most of the world, is already reeling from COVID-19 pandemic uh, and the economic uh, ramifications of that. But in addition to that, we're well and truly into winter. Uh, which can really reach freezing temperatures across most of the country uh, with inadequate heating uh, for many families. Uh, In addition to that, there's a a cash liquidity crisis uh, with international sanctions, the the freezing of of assets of the country, meaning that many families can only access a limited number of funds, even if they did have savings uh, every day. Uh, And secondly, many of them don't even have savings because of the loss of jobs, uh, the loss of income uh, to significant levels, uh, around 90% according to our calculations. So an economy in free fall, uh, families are not able to even access uh, full three meals a day. Many families are missing out on meals or not having uh, sufficiently nutritious meals. On top of that, you have a water crisis in many parts of the country. It's the worst drought in around four uh, years and certainly a a continued drought, protracted drought situation in close to three decades. 
so that can lead it to other problems uh, that we're finding in certain areas of Kabul, for example, like uh, cholera. So overall, the situation's not good. Uh, the one positive is that there's less conflict currently uh, after 40 years of this country being really in the depths of ongoing uh, violence. Yeah, it's it's a, it's definitely a complex um, situation, Ash. And I guess for our listeners who may not be across some of the international space and and across the international organisation for migration, uh, can you help them understand what's really the role of your organisation and what does your day-to-day work look like when you're in country? Thanks, Josh. Well, IOM's just celebrated its 70-year uh, anniversary, actually. Our history came out of the European migration crisis in World War II. Uh, and since then, uh, we've expanded our operations across the world and expanded our role. Uh, we have been in Afghanistan since 1992 and had an uninterrupted presence there, uh, including during the first uh, Taliban uh, regime. Uh, in Afghanistan, like many parts of the world that are afflicted by crises, uh, we focus on the internally displaced, of which there's an estimated 5.5 million uh, within Afghanistan, and also the significant number of undocumented Afghan migrants returning across neighbouring uh, countries, uh, particularly Iran and Pakistan. Uh, being undocumented means uh, that they don't necessarily have availability to access of, of many critical basic services uh, and their flows in and out of these countries are irregular uh, and that comes with some dangers uh, such as the risk of human trafficking and uh, and the smuggling of, of organs, et cetera. So we're talking about a large number of very vulnerable people, but in addition to that, with a country that already had a poverty rate of over 50% and is increasing really by the day, you're talking about an entire population uh, that uh, is really becoming more desperate. And the UN estimates uh, that we're uh, targeting at least half of the population at the moment as in need, uh, and many of which are at a critical need. So really our activities as IOM are broad-based. Uh, while we focus on human mobility, uh, we are focused also on assisting the host communities uh, that, that might have internally displaced, for example, because you can end up feeding in to social tensions uh, if you are only assisting one aspect of the population. Yeah, it's as I said before, it's definitely a, an interesting environment. I think your organisation works in, and it's probably something quite unique to many of our listeners who probably wouldn't have come across this type of, um, you know, operating environment before. And I think it's really interesting as well. I think people often think of the UN as this kind of singular entity, but it's not. It's really got multiple arms, and it's and very much a, um, you know, the wider UN cluster system. How does the IOM fit into that space for some of our listeners who may not be across how the UN operates more broadly? Yeah, so many people, when they think of the UN, would probably be thinking of the 
United Nations Secretariat with its headquarters in New York and some of its main office, for, for example, in European capitals like Geneva. Uh, but under the UN umbrella are agencies, funds and programs. Uh, so, for example, UNICEF would be an agency that many uh, would be familiar with. IOM is one of uh, these specialised agencies. We actually we technically a related uh, organisation. The way that we operate particularly within the humanitarian sphere. As you mentioned, Josh, uh, one of those coordination mechanisms is the cluster leadership approach, which came out of the uh, sort of decades coming in through the 90s into the 2000s uh, of a humanitarian reform agenda, where we realized that we could really be coordinating better on humanitarian response, really culminating in the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004, uh, where the cluster leadership approach wasn't applied. It was applied, I believe, the year later in Pakistan. And I, I was actually part, participating in the second cluster ever activated in, in Yogyakarta in Indonesia uh, in, in 2006. Essentially, that system means that an agency, usually a UN agency, will be taking a global lead in a specific area that they have a mandate and a comparative advantage. That is specific expertise. Uh, so going back to the UNICEF example, they're a cluster lead for water sanitation and hygiene uh, and education because they have particular expertise in this area. For IOM, we're the cluster lead in what we call camp coordination, camp management in natural disaster settings. In conflict situations, that becomes UNHCR, High Commissioner for Refugees. In the case of Afghanistan, IOM, aims to work closely with other partners such as UNHCR in this cluster leadership approach. It doesn't always have to be those agencies taking the lead in any given country, but it allows us to ensure that we uh, avoid duplication of efforts, uh, that we take the different capacities of organisations, not just the UN, but international NGOs, our local NGOs uh, within that particular country in response to that particular crisis. Uh, so, for example, some agencies have better geographical footprint than others. Uh, so that's what the, the system is about, uh, ensuring that we can be more effective in the delivery of humanitarian assistance. just want to unpack a little bit more around, because um, for me, doing some reading into this space, Ash, really has given me um, an understanding and an appreciation for the capability that you guys have to work with in country. And I think having that broad um, you know, geopolitical understanding because it's not just obviously what's happening in country, it's very much still influenced by what's happening around you and other countries' decisions in this space. Um, and I know there's some interesting news coming out of the US um, today um, with some lifting of sanctions, but, you know, how do you work in that space? Because um, following uh, the change, uh, obviously a lot of countries moved with sanctions in place that often makes your work, you know, far more difficult can you unpack that a little bit? What do those sanctions mean for you in country? And then what are some of the ways that you work in that space? Yeah, really important and, and complex question, Josh. Uh, but to simplify it, if international sanctions against uh, a country, and in this particular case against a group or against individuals exist, and those individuals happen to be running the country, it means that if the UN and its partners 
and IOM is to be trying to deliver assistance uh, to populations, the question has to be raised, are we in breach of these international sanctions? And if we are, that presents uh, significant legal issues. It presents issues as to whether the donor funds that we have received uh, can be considered as eligible costs, as in, and moreover, whether IOM is actually in breach of international law. So we have to tread really carefully in this regard, and we very much welcome the extension uh, of the exemptions to these international sanctions for humanitarian assistance. Uh, my understanding is that the exemptions allow quite a broad interpretation of humanitarian assistance. Uh, so it's not about just the distribution of, of shelter material and non-food items or food. Uh, it's also about the delivery of basic services. Uh, I need to delve a little bit deeper into that and see if there's any further changes. But either way, uh, the fact that the Security Council made this announcement uh, is a testament, obviously, to the, the capitals realising the significant uh, humanitarian catastrophe that is around the corner for Afghanistan. Uh, so we certainly uh, welcome it. Uh, and if possible, we need to be looking to the future uh, of when we move from immediate humanitarian assistance into development, how we are going to navigate that space. Because, of course, we can continue to deliver emergency assistance for a period of time, but you are not increasing the resilience of Afghans or Afghan communities if we're only continuing to deliver humanitarian assistance. You, you essentially are propping up what becomes a welfare state. So these are tricky questions going forward uh, and also just highlights the complexity of the situation that exists in Afghanistan and, it's, and as an operating environment. Yeah, it certainly sounds complex. And I was wondering as well, how does this political change that's happened recently in Afghanistan contribute to um, an environment where maybe there's a different approach to gender that there has been previously? Have you found that to be a challenging situation at all in your organisation? And is there any uh, issue that may be preventing women getting involved in certain activities at the moment in Afghanistan? You guys are certainly asking the more tricky questions, uh, international sanctions and, and, and women and girls, uh, certainly two of the bigger issues. And, and women and girls is certainly at the forefront of our minds uh, and was one of the gains of the last 20 years. Uh, we had more girls that were going into school, more women in the workforce. Uh, certainly for us, one of the, uh, I guess, positive signs uh, of the recent uh, last few months has been that our female staff have largely been able to return to their work uh, unencumbered generally. Uh, however, it's not homogeneous across the country and there are individual provinces that we have to make essentially negotiations. Now, our negotiations, we don't do alone, as in IOM. We work together uh, with our UN partners, in particular the Office of Coordination Humanitarian Affairs, or OCHA. Uh, they have a specific humanitarian access group that addresses uh, some of these key points. And connected to what we call the HAG, Humanitarian Access Group, uh, were developed even pre-15th uh, of August, joint operating procedures. 
which essentially was saying when we operate across the country and particularly in Taliban controlled areas at that time, we have to agree that we operate with impartiality, with neutrality, with independence. Uh, an extension of that uh, was a discussion around essentially ground rules, which was do we have any red lines uh, for not being able to sort of operate? And one of those but that was being discussed at the time was, of course, female workers uh, being able to, to get on and do their job. Uh, it was a tricky conversation. There was really no conclusion. And I think part of the reason for that was because we realized that it's political dynamite for the Taliban to talk about uh, girls returning to school across the board uh, and making a policy announcement and similarly uh, females returning to work. What we found is that we need to be able to operate to a certain extent within a gray space. And that meant sort of province by province, sometimes district by district, speaking to the local authorities and being able to uh, get our, our females back to work. And, and we've largely been successful in doing that. Uh, so does it continue to present challenges? Significantly. Uh, they have made promises, uh, as you may have seen on the media, that girls will return to school by March, for example. Uh, we're going to watch this space very carefully and see what happens. Uh, obviously, as part of the international community, we want to see that happen and we want to see that happen as quickly as possible. Uh, but certainly for the delivery of humanitarian assistance, if we don't have our female colleagues able to work, then it's hard to deliver assistance to 50% of the population. Because remember, even if there were development gains over the last 20 years, it is still largely a very conservative country. Uh, so men being able to deliver assistance uh, to women is often taboo. Uh, and even now there's certain conditions in certain areas. So for example, our female staff are required to use a maharam, which is essentially a male relative uh, to accompany them uh, to their work. Now we facilitate that wherever possible for a humanitarian imperative. Uh, is it unfortunate that this becomes a requirement? Most definitely. Uh, at the moment though, we have to in some ways choose our battles. Yeah, it's like these are sort of challenges, I guess, we just don't sort of consider in Australia to think that um, there's any differentiation between women and men in terms of what roles they're able to do and what they're able to get in the environment. So it's really interesting hearing from you and I guess um, prompts some thoughts in terms of how you'd manage that in a disaster and understanding the needs of half the community, I guess, which is really sort of challenging. There was an interesting question, Ash, and, and I think that it was a bit of a segue before um, when we were speaking about uh, the notion, you know, the difference between relief and then looking at how do we move into that more development phase and the shift. And one of our keen listeners, Adelaide, actually put in a question and I'm going to paraphrase it just so I can match it into this context. But the question was very much around the notion that if we've got thousands of people leaving this, uh, leaving the country, fleeing for, for genuine reasons for, for, you know, for fear or, or for whatever notion that, that it may be, as you have those people leave, obviously there's this capability gap. You're obviously leaving individuals that undertook roles in society. Um, you know, they did jobs, they had knowledge, um, they had um, an understanding of country. In that more longer term um, view of, uh, you know, relief and development and how we support countries in crisis like Afghanistan, 
you know, what does that mean for country? If we've got all these people fleeing all of this capability, what does that mean for that longer term recovery? Yeah, Josh, human capital is a significant issue for Afghanistan. Obviously, over the last two decades, uh, the US, NATO, uh, Australia and, and other partners were engaged in a lot of capacity building technical assistance to government. We were too uh, before the 15th of August uh, and, and have been for many years uh, together with other UN partners uh, and, and, and other NGOs. So when we saw a lot of these people leaving, uh, particularly from key government positions, uh, we were certainly concerned about that. And interestingly, the de facto authorities have expressed their uh, significant concern with this too uh, and have made a point of stating that they have maintained many uh, you know, former government employees in their positions. And, and that part's true. I mean, yes, many within very senior roles have, have lost their jobs and, and many have left. But across the board, uh, particularly in, in government services, but even in private sector, when you're experiencing uh, a brain drain like this, uh, we need to be looking at uh, longer term approaches to how how we can continue to build the capacity within country. And that comes back to some of the points about girls in school, for example. If you are not providing that primary and secondary education, let alone university, uh, you're going to have a large half, at least half of the population uh, that don't have a basic education, let alone skills that can substantively contribute uh, to a productive workforce. So it, uh, we, we do at some point need to be uh, looking at that, that longer term issue, uh, but that will be coupled together with, you know, the unfreezing of assets, uh, the recognition of, uh, of the de facto authorities as, as a government. And this is not necessarily an advocacy point, but certainly a point that, that needs to be discussed uh, because where can Afghanistan go as a country other than becoming a, a fully fledged fail state uh, without addressing these these key questions? It's a, it is actually a really <laughs> wicked problem. I think the more we unpack it and the more we think about it, there's just so many complexities and everything that you touch almost has this reactionary effect on three or four different other things. So definitely don't have, envy the work that you do in country, Ash, with, with, your, with your staff and your volunteers. But I think one of the, the big things that hit home for Australians was very much, and I think Andrew touched on it a little bit earlier, was that initial media coverage. It was um, extremely confronting some of the images that we were seeing on the news. But the upsetting thing is, is that I don't think I've heard anything um, in the mainstream media for probably the past few weeks. For you and your work around, obviously, you need that international attention to, to bring donors and to bring funds into the, into the system. You know, how do you navigate that space? And, and I guess, how do you interact or use media, um, I guess, to bring light to what you're doing? Josh, you hit an owl on the head there in regards to some of our concerns about publicity to the Afghanistan crisis. Certainly in the initial weeks, I was doing a number of, you know, international news interviews uh, and there was a significant demand for those and they have really 
tape it off. We, of course, tap into social media where we can to, to keep an active audience, but often the people that are sort of following us, for example, on Twitter are those that are already interested in the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, we do the same sorts of approaches through other media channels, uh, social media, for example, our, our Facebook or the updating of our, our webpage, et cetera. I think part of what's important is that a lot of people relate to people. So we focus or we try to at least on the human interest story. So where we have, for example, a young Afghan woman that has decided despite her fear of uh, some sort of abuse or harsh treatment by the de facto authorities to her attending her work, that she still goes. Uh, the fact that she still wants to make a success out of her, her business or for the female employees that she's working with uh, was as is the case that I saw in Herat, a female owned business with, with two young women working for her. One was an internally displaced uh, from a different province. Another one had returned back from Iran. Uh, both were very keen, all three were very keen on continuing to work and continuing to be productive, not only in support of their families, but also in support of their own aspirations for their future. We have to take these types of stories uh, and not only be inspired by them ourselves to the work that we're doing is actually making a difference, uh, but secondly, uh, to be able to project those stories out uh, through our various channels to, to show one, there's hope, uh, and, and two, where there isn't to also be showing that other side of the story. Uh, so where the, the dire humanitarian need is, I think both are important, uh, because then we sort of get bombarded, uh, with, uh, those very extreme types of stories that, uh, it can lead to compassion fatigue, essentially. Uh, so I think coupled with some of that good news story, which exists, uh, that's really important. I think that notion of, uh, of hope is really important. So I know um, when I first, um, you know, and, and, and many would have been the same when you saw those images, um, it was, you know, that sense of hopelessness, you know, it's a, it's something that's so far away. Um, but again, I, I agree with you. It's that human, it's that human focus piece. You know, you think about, I mean, for myself with children, I see other children and it just really hits home for me that, you know, if that was my child and that compassionate element, and I guess even people listening to this today may again go, well, this is such a big, um, you know, this is such a complex situation, you know, what could I do as just an individual in this world? For people that are feeling that, Ash, um, you know, how can people get involved uh, or how can people, from your point of view, effectively help in this situation? I think the first thing is to pay some attention uh, and then depending on what your personal capabilities and resources are is, is whether you choose to take action. Now, one of those is paying attention to also what Australian government policy is uh, or for your other international listeners, whatever their policy of their government is in regards to Afghanistan. 
uh, are they providing assistance through their aid agencies and where is that assistance being channeled? If they choose to donate to a particular cause, do some homework, ensure that that particular organisation that you're donating to is able to effectively operate in Afghanistan uh, because many, unfortunately, have had to uh, essentially suspend operations uh, because they can't effectively operate anymore. And if they are effectively operating, are they having an impact uh, in the work that they do? And that comes back to your question, Josh, about the communication aspect to our work. Uh, we do have a responsibility to those that are giving us money uh, to, to show them, uh, to illustrate through photos and stories uh, and numbers about what we're doing. So I think these are the different elements of what people can do. If people are super keen and want to go to that next level, then of course they could uh, look to working for one of these uh, organizations as well. Uh, and, but that's a whole another level of engagement, of course. The media mentioned earlier, we had a last guest on our um, last episode and we spoke about aid and some of the really challenging situations facing the Nicobar Islands where um, basically huge media storm and that results in a whole series of donations, some completely unsuitable, um, which really changed the whole nature of those islands there. And really quite a challenging situation, um, just the cultural change that's gone on there. In, in Afghanistan, in your work so far, how do you ensure that the aid that is delivered actually meets community need? I know it's a big question, um, but how do you ensure that's effective and, and can the aid that's donated be sustainable? Well, Andrew, this is a question that goes to the heart of something I'm very passionate about, and that is ensuring that we're accountable to affected populations. AAP, as it's known, uh, has been around for several years and IOM signed up to a commitment of accountability effect populations probably close to 10 years ago, along with a number of other agencies. Uh, now, how does that look? In, in the way we do our work, uh, we do what's called an area-based program. So we will geographically target an area on the basis of, of need generally, and that need can be assessed assessed through a variety of ways. For example, high levels of internal displacement, high levels of poverty, for example. And this is different to going in and saying, okay, we are going to do a water and sanitation intervention or we're going to distribute shelter. It's first saying, let's identify using specific indicators this area and then let's engage the community in the process. So we've identified the needs through our various assessment tools and, and scientific methods. But then let's sit down with the community and verify that. Are these indeed the needs that they see? And how do they prioritise those needs? And what types of projects could we uh, develop as a result of those needs? That ensures that you have a community buy-in from the beginning. That community buy-in can extend even further, not only to a planning process, but also to the implementation. So, for example, if we identify that they need a proper drainage system because they've got a lot of flooding or they need to build a, uh, a flood barrier for the same purpose uh, to protect lives and, uh, and property, then we can get that community involved in the construction of that project and we can pay them as opposed to paying a collection of construction workers. Of course, we have the, 
the technicians involved, the engineers and the field supervisors, uh, but the community themselves are involved in building it. So they're not only learning a skill and getting paid, they also start to appreciate the importance of that project uh, for what it's, it's aimed to achieve. So when it comes to, for example, maintaining that uh, water drainage canal or, or that barrier wall, uh, they're more likely to do that as well. So it lends itself very well uh, to sustainability. It sounds like sustainability is one of the biggest challenges we all face when uh, working with disaster aid. And often once aid is donated, we're faced with another disaster somewhere else, like a compounding or a cascading disaster. So it really needs to be sustainable to actually help the community recover. But I want to touch on something a little differently for a moment, and that's around the response and recovery process in Afghanistan. We had Rod Menner on the show previously. He's a researcher focusing on, on disasters in conflict zones, and he's also lived in Afghanistan. And we discussed the perception that when a crisis happens, uh, everything else just stops. But in reality, that's not how things work. And natural hazards still threaten communities every day, no matter what human crisis is going on. And certainly in Afghanistan, that's no different. Communities are prone to a number of natural hazards. Uh, and that includes floods where 179 people were killed in flash floods in uh, August in 2020. Ash, what does a response and recovery effort look like in Afghanistan? And, and what role does the administration play in that space? Obviously, going back to talking about the capacities uh, of, of Afghan authorities, and, and of course, we've now had a, a, a change of, of the political landscape and, and, and the Taliban are now in control. Uh, so whether they're even looking at uh, the capacities of the Afghan National uh, Disaster Management Agency or ANDMA uh, is, is yet to be determined. We believe a little bit, uh, but that was certainly one of our counterpart agencies and, and continues to be uh, in looking at response recovery and also preparedness efforts. They have some capacity, or at least they did in the past, uh, and what we've worked with them on uh, is community-based uh, disaster risk management. So that involves going out once again to communities themselves uh, and educating them about natural hazards uh, and the potential impacts of those when they meet uh, vulnerabilities and overwhelming uh, coping uh, capacity and hence become a disaster. So part of that is, is the preposition of supplies wherever possible into communities, having evacuation plans, and then actually testing those evacuation plans through simulations. Uh, so essentially it's that that crawl, walk, run teaching methodology where we're firstly raising awareness, uh, then actually starting to draw out plans, doing more of that desktop uh, exercise, and then actually uh, simulating that. So that's one of the exercises that we do uh, and certainly have been trying to encourage, uh, similar to what Australia has uh, in its SES of, of a volunteer core, something similar uh, for for Afghanistan, but we have to be real with that as well. Uh, as I've mentioned uh, for the last uh, many minutes about the, the desperation in, in the Afghan population, that there aren't going to be many Afghans that can step up and say, yes, I've got a capacity and resources to be able to assist here. Uh, so indeed, drought and flood are some of the bigger natural hazards, uh, and it's us being able to monitor them, uh, to increase uh, the capacity 
of, of Andmar to be able to monitor those as well. Uh, and we'll continue to have to look at how we do that. Uh, but it comes back to that, that question about technical assistance to government and how tricky that is right now. Uh, but it doesn't stop us working with the Afghan communities. And that's essentially how we've been approaching since the 15th of August. We have to have a relationship with the de facto authorities, uh, but pro the provision of actual direct assistance to them is not possible right now. What we can do, however, is continue directly assist Afghan individuals and Afghan communities. And I see a real sort of compounding disaster here in terms of when you get a, a flood or a drought, um, I get a sense that it impacts the security of, of, of sources like food and that sort of thing in the country. I know I was involved in a flood a few years ago here and um, I went to McDonald's and they're out of chips. And I was like, this is a disaster. I can't even get fries at McDonald's, but I think it's quite a bit, a bit worse than that for Afghanistan where you get a drought that actually causes ramifications further down the line then. What's the impact on, on food security in Afghanistan as a result of these, these natural hazards well we're fortunate andrew because Kabul doesn't have a mcdonald's uh, so we don't experience those prices but uh, josh would go hungry there pretty quickly <laughs> a disaster for joshua <laughs> uh yeah food insecurity is is a, is a big issue and uh certainly uh, wfp world food program and, and fao the, the food agricultural organization have done some recent assessments of this and they've put it into some of the highest categories of uh, food insecurity emergency. Uh, we are talking about areas of the country uh, that were producing essentially the breadbasket of the country that are no longer producing at the capacity that they could due to a variety of reasons. It could be the drought. Uh, it could be have been the conflict. Uh, it could be the fact that the people have left. There's, there's just so many issues now uh, facing uh, that that these communities are facing. So at the moment, a, a big focus, at least uh, for, for the humanitarian community, in particular agencies like WFP have been the distribution uh, of food uh, across uh, vulnerable communities uh, in the family, uh, in, in across uh, Afghanistan. But once again, it comes back to looking at longer term solutions, uh, sort of the drought resistant crops, uh, alternative approaches to irrigation techniques uh, and they have to be looked at closely. I can remember being in a humanitarian country team meeting the, uh, the other day and we were talking about drip irrigation and drip irrigation works quite well in some contexts, but as the FAO expert was saying, drip irrigation won't work very well in drought context. Uh, that was his particular advice which means that we needed to look at, at other alternatives. So yeah, it, it continues to be a significant issue and we just hope that it doesn't get worse uh, or we may be going into a, uh, a particular phenomenon of, of famine, uh, which would be the next level. It's, it's, it's actually, it, it, you know, it's it's funny in in Australia, uh, you know, this whole no notion of compounding and cascading events is something that's been, um, you know, thrown around a lot in the disaster space uh, here, especially after our black summer bushfires, then COVID, um, and then looking at a range of issues. But I guess Afghanistan takes that to a whole new level because obviously you've got the compounding and cascading natural hazards. 
um, that that uh, that your communities are exposed to, but then throw all of the stuff from around the sides. Um, you know, some of the social issues and and the food security issues, and really you're faced with a quite a scary um, quite a scary future in terms of um, long term disaster risk reduction. Ash, is that something that IOM is is looking at or is that something that people in country are looking at? I think you mentioned just there, you, you know, yes, this drip irrigation works now, but what happens if we're in a drought in five years' time? It won't work. Um, is there much thought in that space broadly across other areas, not just in agriculture, but in infrastructure or in transport? Yeah, really good question, Josh. I'd say there certainly was uh, pre-15th uh, of August uh, looking at, for example, resilient infrastructure, uh, looking at climate adaptation measures, uh, the uses of renewable energy. We are trying to, as IOM, incorporate as much of that as possible into that community planning process I was talking about. Uh, so be it looking at a business, for example. One, how can we ensure that they are more sustainable in terms of an eco-sustainable way? Uh, can they be upcycling? Uh, can they be using solar energy? Uh, that not only, of course, limits a, a carbon footprint, but it also makes them more resilient because they're not reliable on the electric, electrical grid, which is infamously unreliable. But also, are they incorporating a savings plan into the way, into the business model uh, to ensure, you know, uh, they have funds for a rainy day? Uh, secondly, when we do some form of infrastructure, are we ensuring that that, uh, that school or that hospital, uh, that we're reconstructing, rehabilitating is earthquake resistant, uh, flood resistant, uh, is it going to be built in a safe place? Uh, so these are certainly the types of factors that we are taking into account. Uh, we don't do a lot on the transport side of things, uh, but I know that uh, agencies that are working on this would certainly be looking at these types of issues. Are, are they building in an area that's uh, not going to be prone to landslides, for example? It's part of some of those uh, inherent safeguards uh, when we when we look at any of this type of vertical or horizontal infrastructure. Mm, very, very interesting. Uh, all things that sometimes, you know, people probably don't think of, but, you know, they're very, very important for that longer term uh, development piece. Uh, I know this is a question and we're kind of getting to the end of our time here today, but I know this is a question that most people have probably had on their mind all um, this whole podcast, but, uh, and it's definitely intriguing to Andrew and I, but an Australian working in Afghanistan can you take us what a day in the life of Ash looks like? Because um, I know it's really intriguing for us. Uh, like, you know, Andrew and I rock up uh, to uh, to an office building every day, um, you know, go down and get our coffee and we go back and it's quite mundane. But for you, your life, I, I guess, is very much uh, uh, the polar opposite of that. Uh, yeah, Josh, have we got another hour to talk about what my typical day looks like? Uh, it. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. It's very varied. Uh, so, of course, the coordination aspects of my role we've discussed. Uh, so there's a lot of work with, with other agencies uh, in ensuring that we the, the approaches that we're taking are harmonised, uh, that the principles we're taking are harmonised. Uh, there is working directly with uh, my, my field teams, 
uh, and and their management teams to ensure that we can uh, plan our work in effective ways. Uh, there is, you know, speaking to the media, uh, to to international outlets. There is actually meeting with the government, uh, as I had to the other day, uh, the International Migrant Day. Uh, represent my organisation, uh, given our our mandate on migration. Uh, so it it is very varied. Uh, a lot of focus on on projects and how to design them, implement them, monitor them, uh, and of course all of the the budgetary and administrative aspects that go with with the implementation of projects. Uh, so my, I don't really have a typical day per se. Uh, I'd have to say it's a very colourful uh, working environment uh, and very diverse uh, job uh, that I'm involved in and certainly uh, the most rewarding that I've had in, in my career. And if you were to say someone who's listening is really keen to get involved in this space and take up a role with the IOM or work in a country overseas doing DR-type work and work in humanitarian-type work. What um, what are some possible tips for people who might want to get involved in this space? What would you sort of say to someone new to the game? Look, it's not an easy space to enter. Uh, I was very fortunate in my career. I actually started with the Australian uh, Volunteer Program Uh through what they called the AAD at that time, the Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development. Uh, that was after I'd already started with the Australian government for a period of time. Uh, there's other ways within the UN. Uh, there's the Junior Professional Officer Program or JPO, uh, which I understand the Australian government supports. Uh, there's the UN Volunteers. Uh, there is the possibility if you've got some experience to, to get a job at an entry level with the UN or with an international uh, NGO. Uh, otherwise, there's always those volunteering options. I, I wouldn't be recommending that somebody uh, throws up their hand and says, I'm volunteering to go to Kabul now. Uh, you want to be in a, uh, within a working environment, an organization that can ensure you a level of protection. Uh, however, uh, people have asked me about entering particularly humanitarian before. And, and what I've said, if there is a natural disaster within your region, for example, uh, throw up your hand and and be willing to volunteer. And that's actually what led me in my first natural disaster response in Indonesia uh, was essentially saying, I'm willing to transfer. I can go now. Uh, there was a significant earthquake. The scale of the damage had left over half a million people homeless. So they, they had an immediate need. And I was able to, to throw myself at that. And I was literally on the back of trucks, uh, passing out tarpaulins and, and blankets. That's how my job started in this, in this sector. Uh, and then it's just uh, progressed there on. And that was a super important experience uh, because it meant that I, I really understood many of the operations from literally the grassroots uh, before stepping into management roles here late, years later. Yes, certainly made me interested in uh, in getting involved and hearing more about it. And I'm um, sure it's not an easy role to get into, but certainly sounds like the work you're doing is really interesting and also very satisfying and very enjoyable in terms of making a difference in those sort of countries. But unfortunately, we're out of time. Ash, it's been great chatting with you today on the show and really appreciate your time and the experience you've shared with us. We've, for those listening online, we've shared some photos from your work in Afghanistan on our website at memyselfdisaster.com. Ash Carl, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. Thanks so much, Andrew and Joss. Pleasure to be with you. 
that's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com. Disaster.com.